Hi everyone, I'm your host Senji and welcome to the 59th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks help us understand the world. And on this episode I was joined by Marcus Collins, author of the book For the Culture, the power behind the world's most successful brands, from Apple to Beyonce. In the book, Marcus argues that the most powerful vehicle for influence and behaviour is true culture engagement. To inspire communities, we first need to think hard about how we appeal to their values and what will we contribute to their culture. And with a deep perspective based on a century's worth of data, Marcus breaks down the many ways in which culture influences behaviour, using captivating stories from his own life as a top marketer, including spearheading digital strategy for Beyonce, working with iTunes and Nike Plus on their collaboration, and designing ads for McDonald's. In the book, he shows how you can do the same. It was great to discuss the book with Marcus, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. first thing I wanted to ask you actually is why is culture one of those words that's often used but very much misunderstood? Because culture is all around us. It's like omnipresent. It's like explaining water to a fish. It's in everything that we do. And because of its ubiquity and how it surrounds so much, it's hard for us to put into words. So therefore, we find a lot of proxies, a lot of obfuscations sometimes, and sort of some of the characteristics of culture without getting down to what is the driving force that culture really is. So what would you say are the systems that make up culture then, Marcus? So I look at culture through a Durkheimian lens. This is Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology. He talks about culture being a system of conventions and expectations, essentially, that demarcate who we are and what people like us are expected to do or was acceptable for people like us. And later on, about a century later, a little short, less than a century later, a gentleman by the name of Raymond Williams talked about this system as being a system of systems, to your question, um, that it starts with our identity. Like, who are we? How do we self-identify? And because of who we are, there are a set of beliefs and ideologies that help shape the way we see the world, right? They are frames by which we contextualize the world and then translate it. Um, and because we see the world a certain way, we therefore show up in the world a certain way. We adopt a certain a certain aesthetic of artifacts. These are patterns, clothes, fabrics, symbols, and other semiotics. Then there are behaviors. These are the rituals, the norms, the so, the, the unwritten rules, the, the ceremonies, the traditions that people like us do. And then there's the language. This is the vernacular, the nomenclature, the just the the language. But it's the dialect, the hidden words, the hidden meanings inside the words that are that demonstrate that you're one of us. So because of who we are, we see the world a certain way, and therefore we show up in the world a certain way with artifacts, behaviors, and language. And then we express our cultural subscription through shared creation, right? What the literature refers to as cultural production. This is literature, music, film, art, television, podcasts, and of course, brands and branded products. They become ways by which we express who we are, but also reflect what people like us ought to do. And the alchemy of these systems, identity, beliefs, ideologies, way of life, artifacts, behaviors, language, and cultural production, the alchemy of these systems, they constitute our culture. And because of our cultural subscription, we therefore behave accordingly. Hmm. So if identifying how we see ourselves is a cornerstone in culture, how do brands and companies manage to tap into this? 
it starts with finding congruence between who the brand is and who these people are. And brands can tap into culture in, in three ways described in the book. You can contribute to culture, like drive it, like lead culture by contributing to the pre-existing social facts or cultural characteristics of the community by adding new artifacts, new behaviors, new language through cultural production. Or you can participate in it, right, by being a part of the discourse, leveraging the pre-existing social facts or cultural characteristics of the community. Or you can follow culture, which uh, I have to refer to as my, my friend Eric Holkman puts it, it's like sucking tailpipe. Right, you can either drive culture, you can ride shotgun, or you can suck tailpipe. And the last thing you want to do is suck tailpipe, right? Just trying to follow what's what's hot, and you you circumvent that by finding congruence between the cultural characteristics of a group of people and the cultural characteristics of your brand, institution, organization, or entity. And when there's alignment there, people use your brand as cultural products, not because of what it is, but rather because of who they are. So when it comes to culture, how integral is it for a brand to find the congregation and how have some managed to achieve this in the past, Marcus? Well, it's critical. You know, when we talk about culture, we're, we're talking about social actors that participate in the social facts, cultural characteristics of a group of people. We're not talking about quote unquote consumers, you know, these machines, we messages and crap cash. We're talking about real life human beings. So we have to look at them like real life human beings and people congregate with people like themselves, right? And it, it's, no, it's no wonder that the early scholars of sociology study culture by observing religion because there's so many through lines between the religious text and how culture manifests, right? We congregate with people like ourselves, which is why in church, for instance, in religion, there are congregations, Right. And those congregations are made up of practitioners who share a same ideology, same belief, same way of life. And the same thing goes for brands. Like, don't go looking for people who want a sharper razor. Go look for people who see the world the way you do, who just so happen to want a, a closer shave. When you find people who see the world the way you do, those people will consume not because of the value propositions, but because of the ideological congruence. And as a result, not only buy, they use the brand as a receipt of their identity, and then they go share with people who are like themselves. And that's much, much more powerful than saying, oh, this has three blades and that one has four. Someone buy the one that has four. Because soon someone will have five and then you're going to be you know, in pretty bad shape. Absolutely. And how does this differ from simply finding an audience. And can you touch on, Marcus, why you dislike the word audience when it comes to this? I really dislike the word consumers. I don't love the word audiences because audiences are passive. You know, like the people who are listening to this right now, right? They are, hopefully we have their attention, right? But they're not engaged in the conversation. They're sitting, driving, walking, running, doing something while these messages are waving over them, right? People aren't like passive that way, 
Like I go to the movies to as an audience member. I go to the theater as an audience member to be entertained, right? For messages to wave over me. But in real life, I'm doing a million different things, a million different things, right? So to think about people as these passive, these passive participants of the world, that's just not accurate. They are very, very active. And therefore, we have to look at people based on who they really are, not who we want them to be. We want people to be, uh, you know, receivers of messages and doers of call to actions. That's not how it works. You know, people abide in their in their social groups, and these social groups are governed by their cultural subscription. Therefore. If we want to get people to move, which is the core function of marketing, if we want to get people to adopt behavior, then culture becomes the biggest cheat code. And that requires us looking at people as social actors within their cultural subscription, not audience members uh, waiting to decide how much fluoride you have in your toothpaste this year. When people give advice on targeting a congregational tribe, I feel as though there's always some sort of emphasis on niching down as if people fit into boxes. But people are a lot more varied than that, though, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book that similar minded tribes make up a congregation. So how can a brand tap into this kind of thing? So you're right. We are extremely hyphenated. We have hyphenated identities. I'm a Collins. My name is Marcus Collins. I'm a Christian. That is a, a religious referent. I'm also a professor. That is a singular referent. I'm a father. That's an abstract referent, right? Like as a Collins, as a social referent, like these are parts of my identity. And in each one of those identity monikers are a set of conventions and expectations of what it means to be those people. And, you know, because I'm a Collins, I see the world a certain way and behave in the world a certain way. Because I'm a professor, I see the world a certain way and I behave in the world a certain way. Right? Because I'm a Christian, I see the world a certain way and behave in the world a certain way. And the idea is that those three monikers that have their own set of conventions and expectations, I exist in a world at the convergence of those three. So that as a professor, I am not antithetical to what it means to be a Collins. And as a Collins, I'm not antithetical to what it means to be a Christian. And because we have those hyphenated existences, when brands try to put us in a box based on our demographics, you go, fam, that's not even, what are you talking about? Right? Like, what do you mean? You know, I, I mentioned this in the book, you know, someone would look at my demographics and say, oh, black guy from Detroit, he must like this, do this, hang out with those people, do those things. And like, well, well, I am black and I am from Detroit. Right. But I, I also grew up swimming competitively. Right. And I was an engineer undergrad and I grew up listening to the monkeys, loving the monkeys as much as I love a tribe called Quest. Right. These things shape how I see the world and demographics never get anywhere close to that. It's this hyphenations that I use to describe who I am that make up who I am. So when brands are looking at these groups of people, these congregations and the many tribes that constitute them, we have to look at people in a much more intimate way. To say these aren't single-minded people, they're complex, and we have to engage them in all of their complexity, right? Like, not all hip-hop fans are the same. Not, not, not all athletes are the same, right? I talk about this in the book that, you know, Nike targets athletes because Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. 
But Nike talks to runners different than the way they talk to swimmers, different than the way they talk to gymnasts, different than the way they talk to, to basketball players. While they're all athletes in that massive congregation, these tribes that exist have different conventions and expectations that govern what it means to be who they are. And because of that hyphenation, Nike talks to them in a very unique way. have a chapter titled preaching to the gospel so how is one able to align their message uh, with people's beliefs and identify with them well that's actually the easiest part i think i mean we often think about like we need the creative hook and what's the what's the thing we're going to say and like what's the you know what's going to get people's attention i go yeah like that requires great skill trust me i've worked in advertising for a long time but i think it's the easiest from a conceptual place because if i know what i believe and i know i'm targeting people who see the world the way i do who believe what i believe then my job then as a communicator is to just preach the gospel preach what i believe the truth that i believe right the truth that i hold of the world when i go out in the world and preach the gospel the people who see the world similarly goes yeah dude finally someone said it and they'll take what i say and then go tell other people like themselves, right? In an effort to promote social solidarity among themselves. And that is unbelievably powerful. So for me, it starts with who am I? How do I see the world? Who sees the world like me? Now, how am I going to go preach the gospel? Couldn't go, finally, someone said it. I want to backtrack a little bit, actually. And it's to a point where you say in the earlier part of the book that the destination for all marketing activity is behavioral adoption. So how does this intertwine with human behavior and the development of culture? Marketers, we're in the business of getting people to move, right? Don't drink this, drink that. Don't go here, go there. Don't buy his shoes, buy my shoes. Don't vote for her, vote for him. Don't sign up for his newsletter, sign up for my newsletter. Everything we do as marketers is getting people to adopt behavior. And what we know is that behavioral science studies the underlying physics of human behavior. You know, the scholars study why we do what we do. So I don't understand how any marketer could be a good marketer without understanding the behavioral sciences. So it's taking what we know of why we do what we do, sort of the, the antecedents that inform what we actually do realizing that what we actually do is disproportionately influenced by our cultural subscription. In fact, I'll argue, and I do argue, that there's no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. Therefore, if you are a marketer, whether you have a marketer in your title or you, you have a vested interest in getting people to adopt behavior, getting people to move, then culture is the biggest cheat code for you, full stop. And the book unpacks why that is, how that is, and how you as a practitioner can leverage this phenomenon or these phenomena to get people to move too. So I wanted to also highlight something that you mentioned in the um, later part of the book, and that is evaluation and legitimization. How does this tap into the idea of giving something meaning? Yeah. So this actually comes from my uh, my doctoral work. So I studied how brands and branded products spread within a cultural context. 
Particularly, I studied hip hop culture, how brands spread in hip hop culture, doing a netnography through subreddits, conversations that happen on subreddits. And while I was going to look at why things spread, like the mechanisms of why things spread, what I realized is that it's all a function of meaning making, how we make meaning, how we translate the world. And of course, what mediates meaning making? Culture. And what are the steps by which that happens? Well, for things to be adopted within a group of people, within a community of people, there first needs to be, at first, simultaneously, there needs to be a sense of whether it's good or bad and whether it's acceptable for people like us. And the interesting part is that there are things that may be bad, but still be acceptable. For instance, we may say, hey, listen, drugs is not good. We know that, but like, we pop in pills right? <laughs> because that's what people like us do, not me, but that's what people like us do, right? So the idea of evaluation is whether or not it's okay. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And then legitimation is the process by which we decide, okay, do people like us do something like this? And those are the precursors. They happen simultaneously. It's sort of like, you know, it's like a chicken or the egg. They both kind of happen at the same time. But those are the precursors before we decide, okay, this is the behavior I'm going to do. Or, okay, this is what I'm going to adopt. And that idea of saying, is it good or bad, and deciding whether or not it's acceptable is the, the mechanisms by which not only things spread, but also how we make meaning, how we give it meaning. Because things around us, everything around us is inherently meaningless. You know, we, we impregnate things with meaning. By themselves, they have no meaning, right? Red is only red outside of it being a wavelength that activates our eyes to see a color, but almost why red means stop and red means fire and it means hot. It means caution. It means sexy is because we have negotiated as a society, global society in many ways, that that's what red means. But does red mean stop inherently? No, we just decided that it does. And it's that process of designation of evaluation and legitimation that helps us navigate day-to-day -day life, which is crucial as participants, social actors in this world, but also as practitioners whose job it is to get people to adopt things. I remember there was an example that you brought in the book about the influence of smoking, which I found very, very interesting because, you know, you're taking an action which everybody knows is unhealthy, but you're, you're legitimizing it by making it seem as though it's desirable, you know, yeah. within a certain class and it, people end up still adopting it, despite them knowing the lack of health benefits there are behind it, you know? <laughs> Zero health benefits, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's cool. Well, at least it was cool in the mm. States. Like, I mean, mm. It's different in different countries for sure because they operate, by they operate by different cultural meaning frames. But in the States, you were a badass. You were cool, man. James Dean, you know what I'm saying? Like it, you were a rebel. It was rebel cool to smoke. But then we delegitimated smoking. Such that people go, oh, you smoke? Oh, why would you do that to yourself? And you were almost, it wasn't that you were cool. You were now sort of a degenerate, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. to smoke because we have negotiated that smoking is no longer cool. It's no longer acceptable within the cultural frames of people like us, the expectations of people like us. And that is powerful, man. And if nothing else, it should be sobering uh, with regards to how we've traditionally thought about marketing communications that, man... Most products are parody. Most, most products, man, like the, the differences are so minuscule 
that trying to communicate through some advertising, it's a Herculean effort because the, the differences are so small, which makes it a difficult job for, for marketers, right? So the idea is that like, let the value propositions come, but let it come after you focus on the ideology, right? As I say in the book, Gemma C.C. Chapman puts it this way, you start with the soul and with the cell. You start with the congruent ideology, and then you end with the value propositions, the, the sort of selling benefits, if you will. So off the back of that, Marcus, then, what is more powerful, reinforcing the methods of promoting a brand or people sharing commentary of it? Ooh. Well, I think that they, they kind of operate, they're kind of one and the same. I think that like trying to reinforce what the brand is, is the job of marketers, right? We're trying to signal to the world what the brand is, but simultaneously as people either adopt, legitimate or delegitimate, don't consume, they are also signaling what the brand is, right? So when you see people walking around with uh, fear of God essentials. It is a vote that this is cool. It is reinforcing the idea that this brand is worth having. If no one was wearing it, it goes, I never heard of this thing. No one wears this thing. Is it even cool? And we actually started seeing some of that with Supreme. Truly, right? Less people are wearing Supreme, even though there's more of it in the market than it was before, Right. And that's giving a signal that like, it's not as hot as it once was. Now it's not dead, not by any stretch, but it doesn't have the same sort of cachet that it, want, that it once had. So as Supreme is doing what it does when it goes to market to signal its perceived or desired perceived value, the market is casting a vote that reinforces what that brand means in the minds of the people. And that's the biggest takeaway from marketers is that we don't make meaning, we signal it in hopes that people see our signal and agree with it. The other way, though, is they may go, oh, I see what you're saying, but nah, fam. <laughs> no, 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 no. We ain't rocking with that. That ain't cool. Like, I mean, like, you know, no shade, but you know, I don't know if it's uh, over in, in the UK, but here in the States at Super Bowl, Snoop did a partnership with Skechers. So Snoop has a, a line at Skechers and we go, oh man, Snoop, we love you. But come on, son. <laughs> we not rocking Skechers, fam. No. <laughs> we love you, Snoop. Like Snoop, we love you, mm. IG. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but nah, fam. Nah. That one's not running. <laughs> yeah, so it's not going to happen, right? So mm. even though Snoop is signaling like, yo, my Skechers is cool now because I'm rocking them. The, the contemporary culture goes, nah, B. They still Skechers. Another thing I wanted to ask you, Marcus, is what is the term uh, meaning incongruence? And why is this something that happens quite often with brands who are trying to get a message across? So meaning is the interpretation, the translation of a stimuli, of what we see, what we experience. Meaning congruence is when the meaning that we have established in our collective minds is aligned to the meaning of the stewards of the brand or of the message or the, the the sender of the message, right? So what they said is what we heard. We have congruence. We are, we are aligned, right? You know, it's like um, my wife and I argue 
when we do, it's often because she's not hearing me and I'm not hearing her. I hear her words, but what she's saying, I'm translating differently in my mind than what she intended and vice versa. We are not having meaning congruence, right? We're incongruent and therefore we find ourselves out of sync. The same thing goes in the market when we're communicating ourselves one way and hope that people go, oh, I see it that way too, or, oh, I get it. When there's incongruence, when they go, mm, nah, nah, and their brand goes, we didn't mean it like that. Is that what we intended? That's meaning incongruence. So lastly, I'd want to know what campaign did you really think hit the nail on the head when it came to culture and making an impact? It could be one that you mentioned in the book or one that's happened recently that you liked. I'm a big fan right now of, of Liquid Death. Are you familiar with Liquid Death? No, what's that? It's so interesting because they've taken what would likely be argued, at least in the States, a commodity industry that is water. It's canned water. Mm. So instead of bottled water, it's in a can, so like in a tall boy. Okay. Right? Mm. Tall boy can. And it looks like beer. When you see the can, it looks like beer. And it's like the aesthetic is very sort of hardcore. It looks like it's a hardcore beer, mm. but it's water. And the the belief of the brand, Liquid Death, is that it wants to reduce the amount of plastic used in the world because of its its invasiveness on on the planet. So the idea is to kill plastics while murdering your thirst. And they use aluminum cans because they are recyclable. Instead of it being like a normal kind of can of soda, it's a tall boy. So if people go to the gym to work out, they're cracking this water. People are like, "What are you what are you doing?" Dude, like <laughs> yeah. you, you can't do that. Like that that's not acceptable. Like kind of takes the piss out of the situation and all of their marketing communication is irreverent in that way. It's all aligned to like the way they see the world and their point of view of the world. And here's commodity industry. Like their water isn't more hydrogen or oxygen than the next person's water. It's just water. Two hydrogen and oxygen. I think they're valued at $700 million now. They've only been around for four years. Unbelievable. Commodity. Commodity product. But because of their cultural framing, people see the product and the brand differently. And that's pretty awesome. That was Marcus Collins, author of the book For the Culture, the power behind the world's most successful brands, from Apple to Beyonce. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Marcus for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.